0: I'm very, very lucky that I get to help other people be the best version of themselves.
1: Sir David Browsford, to many, he's one of the greatest winners of our generation.
0: If you can get that little bit of insight, why do I feel how I'm feeling? Why do I respond like I do? And then you realise, you think, wow, a lot of my behaviour, a lot of my life was driven by emotion. It wasn't driven by the real me best thing ever if it happens and if it doesn't then you might be absolutely devastated. But you've got to leave it as a dream and you've got to understand that actually worrying about the consequence of an event is detrimental to the process and the performance and the, the chances of you achieving that event. Perfection. Perfection was so far away that there's no point aiming for because we're gonna fail every day. So I thought, well let's have a little progression. It's right then. What could we do by next week that we're not doing this week? What little things could we do? There's a million things that could impact performance and it and it works. It works. 100% it works. It's been 20 years.
1: Sir David Brailsford. I've tried since this podcast began to get Sir David Brailsford to come here and have a conversation with me. So having this conversation today and being able to share it with you is one of the highlights all time in this podcast history I don't think it's an understatement to say that he has worked miracles with teams, taking teams in cycling that were underachieving and making them undeniably the greatest team in their world and maybe of a generation. He's famous for this concept of marginal gains. It's a concept which I speak to my team about every single day. And maybe that's why I wanted to sit here with him. Today, you will understand without a shadow of a doubt how to build a successful team. That's what you'll come away with. You'll understand how to be successful personally. You'll understand how to inspire those around you to be successful. But the surprising thing, which I think you'll also take away from this, is the cost of success. And we don't often take enough time to ask ourselves that very honest question. Is the climb worth the view? But by the end of this podcast, I think you'll be closer in your life to having an answer for that question. So without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. A conscious sense of outsiderness from a very early age um, you said that once upon a time, and it rang very um, true to me as well. And I found it to be a very relatable thing. Mm. Where did that come from? Where did your conscious sense of outsiderness come from?
0: Uh, it's funny when you say that because it resonates, it really does. So I was uh, very young, just been born, and my parents, uh, my dad really uh, decided to move from Derby, where I was born, to North Wales and, and buy a house in Snowdonia. Very keen climber and he wanted to go to, to the proximity of the mountains. So we moved over there, and um, I grew up. It was a very, very Welsh-dominated, uh, Welsh-speaking little village called uh, Dain I went to primary school there and grew up speaking first language Welsh. All my friends were Welsh. Everybody was Welsh, pretty much apart from my parents. Oh. And, um, <laughs> and I had this sort of conundrum then. I didn't probably realise it at the time, but I certainly, on reflection, you know, look back... And, you know, I was very, very much in this Welsh community, very, very tight community. And and I'd go home and my parents were obviously English parents and, and I felt, you know, my dad didn't really conform. He was there to climb. He was there as one of these outsiders who'd come in there to, you know, get up into the mountains. And, um, and I think that, that left me challenged, I think, because I was so wanted to be the same as all my mates, same as everybody else, part of the tribe, part of the gang. And yet somewhere inside I felt maybe I wasn't quite, you know, it wasn't, it, I wasn't fully immersed in it, you know, it wasn't quite there. And don't get me wrong, I, I loved it. And I, I still, I go back then, I love it. I've got, you know, my great friends there. My mum still lives there. But I never actually quite, quite got that full sense of, I belong there, you know, so I've always felt that a little bit. On the outside, I guess
1: you went on to be a great anomaly in what you've achieved in your life and success. Mm. And I look, I always, I'm always, I'm, I guess I'm a bit nosy, but I'm, always, and I did a little bit of childhood psychology when I was in school, so I try and look at like which, what the parental dynamics were that might have made someone that little bit more relentless and that little bit more hardworking. Mm. And I sat here with Eddie Hearn, and I go, "Oh, your dad," I mm. could tell the way his dad was that ruthless intensity clearly rubbed off on him at a young mm. age and i was reading about what you, how you described your dad and it seemed mm. to be dare i say a little bit similar
0: to mm. yeah he to was orphaned very when he was very young so he lost his mum when he was five lost his dad when he was seven and uh of course for anybody that's gonna have a big big impact and i think it, he had a you know a life-changing impact on him and um i think he he was then fostered and um, you know, he tells the story when he was he was growing up in a, in a foster family. The foster family would eat together, and they'd make him eat in another room. And you know, not, <laughs> it was tough enough, I guess. And I think that's had a profound effect on who he was. And and he became um, somebody who was very much, uh, you know, driven to to make his own way. And I think you know that was um, one of his core core sort of deep-seated drives and values is that he he pushed hard and it was always about being was all about working hard make your own way you know don't rely on anybody else to do anything for you do it for yourself and um and he he drilled that into us and i think we just lived it really
1: and cycling i you were very into cycling from a young age i, I had used to wait on thursdays for the sort of cycling newspaper to arrive
0: yeah that's cycling weekly yeah cycling weekly yeah. yeah a little magazine which is a bit of a a cult magazine, you know, quite a niche magazine, and that used to arrive, get delivered on a Thursday. And I'd wait with great anticipation and, and you know, it was one of those when the, the newspapers came around, you'd get your cycling weekly and then you'd sit there and read about all the results and who'd done what. And, of course, there was no, nothing on the internet. There was no no, there was no, there was no other way of getting the news, you know. Yeah. So was, and and you'd, oh, in the back, there was all these little sections where all the results were, all the race results. And you'd look to see who'd done what and study it all. It was... It was like a real, you know, it's a real part of the cycling culture and it still is, to be fair, cycling week is still going despite all of the changes in sort mm. of media and everything else. But um, for me, it's a, it's a real cornerstone of my growing up with the sport, that's for sure. You you then go to school.
1: Mm-hmm. You, go to uni- you go to university. Did you go to university? No, no, I, left didn't, school.
0: I, I didn't enjoy school at all. Did you I, an apprenticeship? Uh, no, no, no. Well, no, i left school when I was 16. Yeah. First day I could leave school, I was out. I oh, was well. done. Yeah, I, I didn't enjoy school. Why? I don't know. I just, I didn't like being confined. I didn't like having to sit in chemistry lessons and I I just didn't, it wasn't for me, you know, I just didn't enjoy it. And it wasn't, I couldn't do it, I don't think. I just didn't enjoy the environment. I enjoyed the the PE and I enjoyed being with my friends and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't, I don't know, I just didn't enjoy that educational, I felt trapped. I felt enclosed and, um, and I don't know, I didn't, I wasn't really motivated to, to learn at that time you know i was I was off doing other things really
1: do, do you think because you had so much free freedom in your in your childhood home you then struggled going to places where you didn't have that that same level of freedom
0: Could- yeah well i certainly like autonomy there's no doubt about that you know and i think it's probably there since childhood you know because i did i did I, I enjoyed quite a lot of freedom going up but i think the, it's quite interesting because somewhere in the back of my mind i knew at some point i was gonna have to go and you know i have to get and learn or yeah, I felt this kind of responsibility for an education somewhere but i just wasn't ready you know and and, um, and so i thought there was the uh, there's what i should do and what i wanted to do i think and there's a little bit of what i should do kind of came along and then in the end i th- sort of thought well actually i, I I want some freedom. I want to explore. I want to go on an adventure. I want to do something different. And so, yeah, so, funny. It
1: so many of the guests that sit here, including Jimmy Carr, it very reminded me of him, have that moment, usually in their early 20s, where they, as you've perfectly described it, there's the thing they should do, usually what their mm. parents want them to do, mm. uh, what society's taught them to do, and what they want to do. Mm. And in Jimmy's case, it was like, quit everything and go and be a comedian, getting paid no money oh, because yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's what he wanted to do and take all those unpaid gigs yeah. for you. You set off on a bike yeah. to France. That yeah, was your yeah, yeah, yeah. breaking
0: out of Wales moment, right? Yeah, and I kind of got this... Um, it didn't happen overnight, but slowly but surely, I started to really, really get passionate about cycling. Like, really, the sport of cycling kind of... It had the freedom, maybe, but it was a sport of suffering. It was a sport of, of sacrifice. It was it was a tough sport, and I liked that. And I liked the idea that you were... there. was only you, you know, this... If you could, you know, it's like the head and heart really. If you if you were intelligent and 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 you could figure out how to train, and then you had the heart and the commitment and the desire and a passion to suffer a little bit, and how deep could you go? And you know, that attracted me to cycling. So if you were good, you were good, and if you weren't good, you weren't good. And then you played a lot of football and in all the little all the sort of junior teams and everything else we were growing up, and there you could you could have a great game and lose, or you could be You know, terrible and win, the team could win. Mm. And I kind of like the, you know, this idea that if what you do really counted in terms of your own performance, as it were, that Mm. sort of chimed with me. And anyway, I I kind of got this passion for the Tour of France and this sort of thing that was kind of happening somewhere in the world. And the more I looked at it, it sort of felt quite, quite gladiatorial and the mountains and the, you know, it felt just epic, a three-week race and... And All I wanted to do was go and, and see if I could watch this race, and I got the chance to go. and I stood there and I got this passion for it. And in the end, I thought, right, I want to go and try and win that thing. And so I sort of said to my uh, mum that, right, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna jack everything in, I'm gonna go and go to France and, and see if I can become a professional cyclist. And uh, she was mortified, horrified, actually like, you can't, you know what you're thinking, you can't go, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I said to my dad, I said, listen, I'm going to jack it all in, I'm going to go. And he was like, yes. Really? <laughs> he loved it. Yeah. And that's all I needed to hear, you know. Once I heard that, then I was like, right, it's okay, I'm going. And so I got a single ticket to uh, Grenoble and got my bike in a cardboard box, rucksack, uh, 700 quid and got a ticket to Bangor Station in North Wales and off I went. I don't think I'd ever really kind of had to cross, I remember having to cross London on the Tube with my bike in a box and rucksack, that was a real ordeal for me. Got down to Dover, crossed on a ferry, got to Calais and I was sitting there and somebody came along and said, you know, do you want a coffee or whatever or a drink in, um, you drink know, on the train and it kind of dawned on me then. I thought, I haven't got a clue what's going on here. <laughs> I, got there, I was trying to find out I wanted to go to a place called Argentier that was my destination and um, I didn't know there was two oh, so there's God. two Argentiers it turns out so I went I was trying to ask this guy in, um, to, to buy a ticket to Argentier and he was, he, he was just being awkward he, you know you could see I couldn't speak French and obviously he wasn't making much of an effort either and then these two quite young guys came along and they said, oh, can we help you? You know, we can speak French and, and English. I'm like, yeah. oh, thanks. So they helped out. It turned out they were Polish and they were two lads trying to defect from Poland because we're still communist. And they were trying to get into university in, um, in Grenoble. And so the very first night I had in France, we slept head to toe, sleeping bags on this thing, and these two poets, like they were petrified. No the time any, any kind of steps or something coming, footsteps, they jump up, <laughs> up, rising, like, shit, we're going to get caught. Anyway, so I jumped on a train six o'clock in the morning, jumped on a train to where I was, thought I was going. I actually ended up in Switzerland. <laughs> so I was a bit, yeah, I was like, whoa. By which time the fun had worn off, you know, I must admit. <laughs> so I got a train, the same train back to Grenoble again, spent my second night on the same platform, the same bench. And then eventually, the next day, got to where I wanted to go in uh, Ajaccio, and oh, that was a bit of an ordeal.
1: But why were you? Why were you going there anyway? What was the? What was the aim of when you arrived at that destination? What were well, you thinking? I just
0: wanted to be. A, I wanted to be a professional cyclist. You know, I wanted to find a way of getting into a professional cycling team. And you know, I think there's no. How do you do that? You know, what I mean, back in the day when cycling was very much a, a niche sport in in Britain, it, there wasn't any obvious kind of route. So the club structure. The amateur club structure um, in France was very, very strong, and and they were like feeder teams to the professional teams. So if you get over there, get yourself in an amateur team, and if you're any any good, you'd work your way up. You know. So I thought, right, that's what I'm going to do.
1: Did did you have a meeting arranged with an amateur team? No, no. (laughs) So you just showed up.
0: So I just went, yeah, and then I um, so I looked for the end of a, I looked for went to the end of a race, waited till everybody arrived and, you know, finished the race, and they were all sort like, car, didn't have the buses back in those days, so the cars were there, and they came, and so I looked around, chose the nicest kit, as you would. Chose the kit. nicest kit. <laughs> <laughs> Seemed like a good start. And uh, I went up to them and asked if I could race, and they kind of, what? <laughs> they were like, what? And um, kind of chuckled, and, and they thought it was a bit odd. And then they sort of passed me on to the next team, and then the next team, and the next team, and eventually I spoke to one like little group, and a guy came over and he said, oh, look, we're, um, he spoke English. And he said, uh, we're from Saint-Etienne. And uh, if you can get yourself over to saint we train as a whole team together on a Wednesday. He wrote me down the address and said, right, come here at nine o'clock on a Wednesday, you can come train with us. So I started training with them and, and that was it. I lived there for three years then. Three years. Yeah. And eventually, you know, you admit that, you
1: realised at some point you weren't going to make it. Yeah, you weren't going to win it. Yeah. The- <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that was a shame. But then I look back on it now and I think if I'd have known now, what I'd known, you know, people say, well, what, what would you change? You know, if I, if I could go back in time, I think if I knew what I know now in terms of training and nutrition and everything else, I'm, you know, I'm pretty sure I could have done a much better job. But I decided for some bizarre reason, I decided I didn't want to eat, um, particularly didn't want to really reduce my fat intake and just, just eat carbohydrate and hardly any protein. And so I stopped, um, I stopped eating meat, I became, you know, a vegetarian. And then I realised now I was just nailed all the time. So I never really optimised the chance that I had, which kind of makes me think now when I get younger, you know, young, talented or athletes or people want to try out and you can't just leave them alone, you know, and just talent alone not always going to get you there, is it? You know, and they need, you need to be in the right environment. Same as my education. When I was young growing up, i um, you know, I'm a bright enough guy, I think. Um, I just wasn't ready to learn. I wasn't in the right environment to learn. I could have learned, but I didn't learn at the time. And I, I, I kind of reflect quite a lot on that really now in terms of creating the right environments, but to people to be able to just progress. You know, what's it take for a human being to cr- progress? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think my role is to try and create those environments and support people to do that really. And I think it's take a lot of learnings from that, you know.
1: one want to get to some of those key learnings that you've had um, to to take a step forward in your story. You then off go to university, which is actually quite surprising. You do a sports science degree for a couple of years.
0: Yeah, it was early years of sports science. It was kind of developing, you know, and the idea of sports nutrition was developing. The idea of sports psychology was just developing. And I started to read around this. I thought, God, I love this stuff. I absolutely, I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough. So the idea of Eventually, when I realised I wasn't going to be good enough to, you know, make the make the top end of, of professional cycling, I thought, right, well, I'll go back now because I would really want to learn. And so I went back to university and I was just absolutely wasn't interested in anything to do with like freshers week or going out. I just wanted to learn and that was it. So I met every every one of the lecturers, asked if I could have a meeting and said, right, I want you to tell me how you're going to teach me. I want to make sure that i I'll learn as much as possible. How are you going to do that? And of course, really? I've gone back since, and they're like, <laughs> a bit full on. You're in I first got there, and um, and so I, I came out of that, and I, I I loved, I absolutely loved every minute of being at uh, university. I Loved it. I loved meeting other people. I loved people that got the same passion. It was a topic that I just couldn't get enough of. I loved the, the psychology and the, and the sports psychology and. And I came out of all of that and really wanted to go in, sort of pursue the sports psychology area. But it just felt at the time it was too fluffy. It was, it, you know, the top pro teams weren't really, it's too, it's like all too macho to talk yeah. about, you know, psychology. And so it wasn't getting any traction at the time. So I thought, God, I'm not sure if I could make a career out of this. So I ended up, I worked a bit longer in, um, I went back in and worked um, in the cycle industry. And then I decided to go and do an MBA. I thought I don't know anything about business. Like, really don't know anything about business. So I thought I'll, I'd like to know about that. So I went back to uh, Sheffield Business School and did an MBA. And, and same there, I just wanted to I wanted to learn. So I think if you're motivated to learn and want to learn, it changes something changes in your mind, doesn't oh, it's it?
1: It's amazing to hear that. Yeah,
0: like absolutely something changes. If you can, I don't know, if you unlock the desire, you're not learning because it's a... Uh, not learning because you have to, or you know, it's not learning because it's um, a must-do kind of thing. But you learn because you want to, and then it—the it, whole process. Life's learning, isn't it? Mm. Life's all about learning, really. And um, and so I think if you can unlock that, then then you're onto something. And luckily, I think um, I think I did. And then eventually, the first contact I had with the British Olympic program it was back in 1997 with a guy called Peter Keen. In Atlanta, Britain won one gold medal, I think, in the entire Olympic Games, which is ridiculously bad. Mm. I mean, it, yeah, it's so bad. It's like, I can't even imagine how that happened, you know, but they did anyway. And at that point, um, John Major bought in the National Lottery with a view that half of the money, half of the profit was going to go into culture and the arts and, um, and the rest was going to go into sport. And the real kind of goal of sport was to get the country up the Olympic table which was unheard of, you know. It's, it's like they were all amateur governing bodies. It was like a dream scenario. And um, and cycling was very, very fortunate that they had a guy at the time called Peter Keane, very, very bright guy, visionary guy, and he wrote a, a beautiful plan, an amazing, amazing plan. Then I kind of met him in in and around 1997. I got my own little consultancy business at the time and we start, I started to help out and I got more engaged and I thought, God, this is this is a combination of everything I've done sort of in my life, really. You know, you've got the, the sporting side, the performance planning side, you've got the psychology of it all. It's new, it's like could be a first time ever kind of scenario. The ambition is amazing. And there's a bit of business wrapped in there as well, you know. So it's, I just saw that and I thought, right, I'm getting my elbows out. and <laughs> I'm not missing that chance, you know. It's like I thought, right, this is my calling and I'm going for it. I love I,
1: so much of that. I, I wanted to pick up on the, the the point you made first about learning. It resonates so strongly with me again. Um, I was kicked out of school, but just uh-huh. exceptionally obsessed with learning as an adult. Mm. And it goes to, speaks to the fact that mm. um, this, the reason my attendance was 30% in school was I was being Pushed to walk down an alley I didn't want to walk down.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, totally.
1: And, yeah, and everyone's terrible, unmotivated terrible. when you try and get them to do something that they intrinsically don't mm. want to do, right? Mm. And this is, I think, a lot of the problem with the schooling system. But when I, ref- as you were talking, I was reflecting all of these messages I get from kids who like label themselves as unmotivated, but in whose eyes, right, in the eyes of their parents who want them to be a doctor, mm. or in the eyes of society that wants them to do a nine to five. But I, yeah. I reject the idea that they
0: are unmotivated. You know, uh, a million percent, I couldn't agree more. You know, and I've, I've worked with a lot of people over the years, and, and um, I think you've got to find out what what's their what's an individual's intrinsic motivate, what's driving somebody inside, what do they really want to do, and you've got to unleash that in the end. Mm. You know, that's what life's about, isn't it? Really, mm. there's nobody, there shouldn't be any, we shouldn't be pigeonholed, and and there shouldn't be lines and and lanes. And I'm very, very, very lucky that I try and. Get to help other people be the best version of themselves, basically. And you think, you know, it, it when you when you no longer compete for yourself, and you think, right, I'm going to be judged on somebody else's performance. Mm-hmm. That's what people judge me on. They go like, well, did somebody else win a race? Not me. I can't. You know, I'm never going to win a race. But that it's like, did somebody else win a race? And then you realise, well, if I'm going to be judged on on somebody else's performance, I better get pretty good understanding, how to optimise and help somebody be the best they could possibly be. And then you think, well, what, what does that look like? Well, how do you, how, what, where's, the, where's, what is that? You know, and that's where you think, well, let's take the human being as a, as a, as a thing. <laughs> you think, how do you get help a human being be the best they could possibly be? Are there certain things that if you can generally get those things right, it helps an individual in the main be the best version of themselves? But the first thing you've got to ask is, like, is that person, what is that person's internal intrinsic drive? Because if it's not aligned, if not really committed and really driven and excited to what you'd like them to be, it doesn't matter how much you'd like them to be, if they're not, they're not. And there's nothing you can do about that, you know. But if there's a little bit of a flicker of, 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 of the light burning there, you can turn that up, I think, you can turn it down, you can very easily turn it off by mistake, or deliberately if you're that way minded. But I think you do, the, the very essence of people achieving things is is they've got to be driven or got, there's got to be a, a reward. I mean, avoiding, you know, avoidance is a very, very strong motivator as well, I think. And, you know, maybe I, I'd argue that maybe in my life I was avoiding failure or, you know, that rather than being dragged towards the positive emotion of, of winning. You know the positive emotion of winning for me isn't that great, unfortunately, I wish it was, but avoiding failure is a massive driver for me so um and so you know either way, you figure out what somebody's drive is, and then you help them. then you think about what you need to do to create the environment around somebody to optimize what they're doing and then and then you've really gotta put yourself in somebody else's shoes and forget yourself, forget your presupcept really genuinely to say right, I'm gonna stand in this person person's shoes i'm going to try and see what life looks like for them and feel what life life looks like for them, and really understand regardless of what any preconceptions I might have what what does that feel and look like, and what do they need? What would the best thing I could do? what do they need to help or support? The more you go through that, the more you kind of recognize as we're all different, but there are some common denominators deep down inside, I think. And um, and if you take the time to listen to people, they might not want to tell you first and foremost. But if you dig away at it, you know, eventually people will tell you what works for them, what they like, what they don't like. And if you listen carefully, you know, people you get a bit, give them a bit of ownership, and they'll tell you. You know, and 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 that is probably one of the most powerful drivers. I think that that exists really. Yeah. You know, you can put a gun in somebody's head. Ask them to jump up and down. They'll jump up and down. You cock it, you cock the trigger, and say jump higher. They'll jump higher, or they'll try to anyway. And then you put it away, and, and and you walk away. And and they're not going to. That that is not a pleasant experience. It's used a lot, and it's used a lot in sport actually, and so less so now, but certainly has been in the past. And um, but your performance is going to be inconsistent, I think, through that, and uh, it's certainly not going to be a very pleasurable experience. And and I think by going down the route of trying to find people's carrots, as it were. I mean, you'll have known, I'm sure, you've, I think you've, you've, you've interviewed Steve, haven't you? Steve yeah, Peters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, an He's, amazing guy. Oh, yeah, unbelievable. And, um, and his work, I think, is just phenomenal and, and something I buy into. But I, I do believe that it's carrot, not the stick.
1: Good. On that point of um, finding out what their true motivation is, mm. what they truly want, and checking that it's aligned with yours as mm. a coach or as a team... Mm. If you ask somebody, they'll typically give you the what they think you want Mm. to hear answer. Mm. So if if I was sat in front of you and you asked me and I was new to your team, I'd say, I want to be a world champion Mm. because I think that's what you want to hear. Mm. How do you see past that? I'm asking this because a lot of people have people in their lives, whether it's a friend or a sibling Mm. or a son or a daughter, who they're trying to motivate to be something and often failing because Mm. they want it more than that person wants it for themselves. Mm. How do you see past that? Um, Is there a technique? Is it just intuitive?
0: Well, I think you've got to, you know, if, as soon as I sit down in, some, in front of somebody and they think, okay, this guy's got some kind of influence over what happens to me, then it's biased immediately. Yeah. And, of course, if you don't recognise that, if I just take at face value what people are telling me now, then that's, um, it, it's naive, I think, really. And I think you've got to go beyond that. Like you say, and I think most people will have a network, and, you know, and and you can identify, if you watch the Spheres of influence, or the, the kind of who's influencing who, and the who who has good relationships with who. You know, if I ask you now what your drivers are in this scenario, in the in the scenario we're currently in, you yeah. kind of think about what you're going to say, really. Yeah, yeah. Whereas I think if you took if I took give me a give me a couple of weeks, I think I could piece together slowly but surely by chatting to you, chatting to other people, asking the right questions, giving you some time you know, different different kind of environments and mm-hmm. some formal, some informal, slowly but surely you, you, you could piece together a, a relatively good picture of where you think somebody's at. Is it a person who's driven by, you know, I like order and discipline and process or is it somebody who wants harmony? Is it somebody who wants to be life and soul of the party and out there and express themselves? Or is it equally somebody who, you know, wants to please others? And if it is pleasing others, then who is it? It's the parents. Quite often I see that really. And then um, you know, you just piece it all together. And once you have that, then you're armed with hmm. information, you're armed with something which is you should really then respond and 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 think carefully about, you know, what is this person all about? You know, can you draw a map of somebody? Can you really map out somebody's sort of drivers, who they are, what do you think their their influences are, what do they really want, what's their you know, what's pulling them and what's pushing them. Mm-hmm. and um, and I think when you get into that kind of realm of high performers and people who are really pushing themselves to extreme levels, there's something pulling or pushing them pretty hard normally, and trying to just understand that and dig a little bit around that, at least, like I say, it gives you the, you know, I think it's an obligation for somebody in, in, in our kind of roles, as it were, to make that effort to make sure you do take the time to fully understand somebody. Have you encountered instances
1: in your career where someone's got so much talent but they're just lacking in drive and no
0: matter what you've done... 100%. Yeah, and what do you do in those situations? Well, in our world, you wouldn't work with them. You know, I wouldn't work with them. I'd, I'd support them and be very, very, you know, not not un, 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 unpleasant or unkind or everything else, but it's not going to work. That's the, you know, it, you have to have, you have to have that commitment and that drive and, you know, that's got to be there. If that's not there then don't go past square one really mm. you know and um when you're young you know you can perform and get to a very high standard on your talent but then when you get to the top of the top as it were and there's maybe five or six people who have this a similar level of talent and and some can get the best out of themselves and get that little bit you know it's like there's you can get a, a normal kind of high level of performance and then every now and again you get this like discretionary level of performance that little bit on top thinking oh wow that was absolutely me or you are at your best and 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 we're not in the business of that, you know, the, the high level performance. We're in the business of trying to get that discretionary performance as as often as possible when it really matters. Mm-hmm. And that's what, you know, that's what we really got to think about. And it's unlikely that you'll get that on talent alone. And even in the most sort of out there sort of talent, um, who can be flamboyant or do the unexpected, et cetera. They've nearly all. They're all committed and very, very, very bought into and driven by what they're doing.
1: You are always one decision away from taking your business to the next level. And it means that I can be more efficient and to focus on more important things like bringing you the best episodes and guests on this show. So I become one of the 37,000 companies that have already made the move over to NetSuite. NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head to netsuite.com slash Bartlett for a free product tour. Back to the episode. That word commitment is um, the first letter in your acronym, CORE, which Mm. is part of... It's a philosophy you're known for. What is this core philosophy? What is that acrony- acronym and uh, what, what does well, it stand for?
0: To, to be fair to, you know, I just mentioned Steve Peters. I think, um, you know, one of the great things I think that I've been very, very fortunate to, to have happened in my life was that uh, we I met Steve back in, I think it was 2002, something like, you know, around that. I'd, I was always into, you know, I liked the psychology. Obviously, I'd studied psychology, but I couldn't quite, it wasn't quite input, output, and it wasn't, I don't know, it didn't feel quite solid enough at times. And then uh, we had an athlete who had, um, you know, had a, a bit of an issue and um, somebody within our medical team had been a student of Steve's at the uh, School of Medicine in, uh, in uh, Sheffield, and they sort of said, well, we could ask this guy to come across, and he did, and, and he did this amazing piece of work with with this with athlete. thought, wow, I've really got to meet this guy. And so I sat down. Uh, with Steve, and he's a um, psychiatrist, not a psychologist, obviously a forensic psychiatrist, and he sat down and he said, right, well, here's my mental kind of map, as it were, and this is how your brain works, and this is the different parts of your brain, think differently, and, you know, you, you know, you do realise that this different, um, your blood goes to different areas, and, and that's, you'll be driven by emotion or logic or by past experiences, etc., and I was like, okay, this is really interesting. And that, what I liked about him, he was like, if you do this, then that. And you should do this, not that. And he's quite prescriptive um, in a very neutral way, but quite strong. And um, I really liked that. Really, really liked that. So I thought, wow, this guy would be absolutely dynamite in sport. And so Steve was still working in um, in the uh, NHS and he was actually working at Rampton at the time as well with you know the mass murders and the psychopaths and all of that. And... So I tried to persuade him. Said, "Come on, you've got to come and work in sports. And and eventually, you know, he he did. To be fair, he came and worked full time, and it was just an amazing period, really, because we sat down and said, "Right, forget cycling for a minute. Let's think about the human brain, the human being, and how do we create the best possible environment for people to perform?" And um, and that's where the core. Principle came from with Steve in the first instance, so it was like you know the C was commitment, so let's let's screen these people for commitment, and he'd do a commitment screen, and he'd ask people about their homework, how they did their homework, and what that what you know when people had to do something, deliver on something, he'd ask, he'd interrogate them a little bit about that, and then the O of the core was for ownership, and uh, the idea that we we a human will perform better and respond better with a little bit of ownership over what they're doing. So, you know, sport was very much a dictate and control kind of coaching model, really, and management model. And um, he was very much of the, you know, very, very strong that as a human, we like to have a little bit of control of what's happening to us. We like to negotiate or have a little say, this works, that works. And, And that's a very powerful kind of construct to work with. Um, the R was for responsibility and accountability. And of course, we've all mm-hmm. worked in professional jobs in the end and we've all got accountability and responsibility in life. And um, and so people need to be held accountable and responsible. And then the E was for excellence, but it was personal excellence. And as he used to joke about it, it should have been personal excellence, but it sounded a bit like corpse. <laughs> so uh, we stuck with core, and um, and so we got all the coaches in and said, "I, I, I bought this hundred percent. Really, really thought right. We're going to do this, and then we'll sort of use cycling as the kind of, you know, not it, well. It was the, it was the opportunity to to do something different, you know. And I was absolutely sure, really, really sure it was the right thing to be doing. And of course, he was there to sort of coach and help and support. And um, so we got the coaches in. and said, "Right guys, we're going to change the way we're we're working here. Um, we're going to put the uh, the time actually. We termed it, going to take the crown um, off the heads of the coaches and put them onto the heads of the riders. And they're going to be the come the kings and queens of their own world, their own destiny. And and we're going to support them in that. And it was just that slight change of emphasis." Which, you know, a lot of the coaches threw their arms in the air. Well, well you know, that'd be out of control. They won't turn up with the training. And, you know, it was kind of an emotional response, really. And of course, you know, Chris Hoy and Vicky Pendleton and all these other, you know, all of the athletes who, who were with us at the time, they wanted to perform for themselves. Yeah. They will not perform for a coach. They weren't, you know, they might have a brilliant relationship with a coach. But it was they, they were they were after their own performance or a team performance. It wasn't it wasn't done for the coach, and it was a it was a real. I mean, it sounds a bit obvious now, I guess, but at the time it felt like a, quite a big deal to be to be really empowering a group of athletes. And um, yeah, and off we went with that really, and um, it was an exciting time.
1: One of the things that I've, I've taken from that many things, but one of the things that I've taken from that, which is, again, feels really consistent throughout lots of things I've read about you, is this idea of going back to first principles to, mm. make, to create better solutions. Mm. And I'll tell you the three touch points where I've kind of, I've, I've seen that in your philosophy. The first is you basically went down to the first principles of the human brain there mm. and said, how does the human brain work? And let's treat the human brain in a better way um, outside of the conventional way of treating the human brain to get a better outcome. That's like, Again, with first principles, it's a lot of work. No one wants to do it. Convention is much, e- much easier. The second thing is just generally your attitude to breaking down what you were trying to achieve yeah. as a team into small sections. That's mm. where I see the first principles thing. And the mm. third thing was I read that you hired younger coaches into your team that weren't tainted with convention. Mm. And again, they're much easier to mm. train in, in, in new mm. ways. Is that?
0: Yes, I think in the mate I think I do like to break things down into... You know, the smallest component bars, or, or first principles anyway. It's not copy and paste. Yeah. And you know, I read a lot and, and I'm constantly kind of reading and listening to podcasts. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm constantly taking information in but and I'll, and I'll use some of the information, but I won't just copy and paste it. I won't just apply it. It's contextual. I'd like to understand what's going on behind it. I'd like to understand the theory and the thinking. It drives people mad actually because... Of, I can talk about methods and whatnot and models all day long, you know. But um, fundamentally, it's how I I like to work. And um, I think it's like the the true, take it down to its kind of deepest sort of simplest level of understanding and then construct it relative to the context of a situation, how it could best apply to what you're doing. Mm. And take the time, you know, take the time and effort and the energy and the, you know it's like to think about it and i'll draw it and i'll draw non-stop by it right? so i don't write so much i draw and then i'll cover my office wall in like sticky plastic stuff on the wall and draw over the walls looks like a madman's in there i must admit but it's how I, it's what i like to do and it's how i work and it drives a couple of people i work with a bit crazy but um i think they used to by now but but I do like to do that, and then and then if you get a real understanding for something, then you can you can see whether you really agree with a with the fundamental principles, and either go with what go with that or question it and develop your own ideas. And like development, if you're going to develop your own ideas, do it sort of um, with originally, as it were, rather than necessarily just kind of um, taking something as well and just applying it. You know, I'm not, I'd be a bit uncomfortable with that. I think
1: one of the things that
0: Definitely felt very original
1: when, mm. when I was reading about um, your philosophy is this idea of forgetting about the result mm. because thinking about the result or the outcome of mm. your performance can reduce the chances of success in that performance mm. that's very unusual because in in teams in competition in business we think about the result we think about closing the deal or mm. you know what and what that will mean and we kind of imagine ourselves in that moment mm. of getting the medal around our neck or that business deal won why is that not a good idea well I think
0: if, if, if an event happens or something happens, the first thing that 's going to happen to you without you even knowing is you 're going to have an unconscious emotional reaction to it and it 's emotion it 's not you 're not thinking it through it 's just purely emotion, and that 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 's going to be you know either it 's sort of a fight flight freeze response really and um, but that that emotional um, response will happen quicker than you know it before you can go in and get any logic or, or get any rationale into into it. And, of course, in, um, in any kind of situation like, a, you know, what could be perceived as a threat state where you're putting yourself in, in some kind of threatening scenario, a bit i damage damaged my pride or, you know, what people what happens to people, they start thinking, well, what, what happens if I win? Why if I lose? Why must I look ridiculous? I don't want to look ridiculous. What, I'm, I'm under threat. And that then becomes, you know, very easy to get emotionally hijacked by that. So then you're purely running on, on an emotion which is inconsistent. It's illogical. You know, it, it's not a it, it's not a good way for you to be basing. It's not a good place for you to be basing your your behavior. But if you understand that and you think, okay, well, look, I, I understand that it's normal that I'm going to put myself in a threatening scenario. So, if I worry about let let my emotion take over and I worry about what happens if I succeed, what happens if I fail, what happens if this, what happens if that, then it, it's actually pointless exercise. And if you can train, slowly recognise and train your mind to go, okay, I know what's happening here. This is just emotion. I'm going to put it to one side. Now then, let me separate this, whatever I'm doing, out into two things. We can have a, a dream. I want to win the Tour de France. It's a dream. My ability to win it or our ability or anybody else's to win it is I'm going to do my absolute best to try and win it. But other people are going to try and stop me and other people are going to try and do something. It's stuff beyond our control that can impact on that. So if you set your goal as I'm going to win, you're going to agitate non-stop because it actually is out of your control. Uh, whereas if you set your dream and saying this is what I'd really, really like to happen, I'll go all in, I'll do everything I can, I'm fully committed to that. But let me break it down into targets, which is, well, it'd be, I, I could get to the ideal weight, I could do the proper training, I could do the, you know, follow a nutritional plan that's going to give me the optimal energy and, you know, I can train my tactics, I can be really work hard to get a fantastic team around me build good rapport build confidence in my teammates these are all things that you can do and so if you say okay let's leave the dream over there for a while but I'm going to go after the things I can do and you base your plan around the things that you can actually control and do you'll be on fire you'll be on fire you'll be absolutely on fire and the dream might happen and it might not and you'll be absolutely oh you know delighted and best thing ever if it happens, and if it doesn't, then you might be absolutely devastated, but you've got to leave it as a dream, and you've got to understand that actually worrying about the consequence of an event is detrimental to the process and the performance and the the chances of you achieving that event. So you park that, go after your targets, and go, right, I'm going process, not outcome. And we talk a lot about process, not outcome. And when you catch yourselves, you know, it's, it's emotion in the end, so of course we do get hijacked, and of course we do get fearful or you know a bit panicked and you gotta you gotta have a system whereby you can talk to yourself a little bit you can bring yourself back around and focus on the now and the process of now rather than worrying about the future Mm. and then you can come back and concentrate on the process get back into the now and you know some of the athletes would would have a routine where they'd tie the undo and tie the shoelaces again or they do they'd have a little you know, a little process that they'd tap into and they'd go into that in, into that, and bring their mind back into the present and stop worrying about the future. And um, of course, the penalty kick's the best example. Yeah, of that. that's
1: what I was thinking about. Yeah. Ronaldo did there. Yeah. I'm sure they they bag 100% in training. Yeah, but exactly. In the Euros I mean,
0: final. <laughs> exactly. You know, and if you take the crowd out and take a penalty, those guys are so accurate and the, you know, signal from the brain down into the muscle to contract in a certain way, that happens and the accuracy and then the, and the Repeatability of that is is absolutely massive. Put a crowd in there, and what changes? Nothing changes physically. It's all between your ears. Mm. And so, how can you train that? You know, and, and the mental skills can be trained just as much as you. You know, we all know that, but we want to get fit and strong. And you go to the gym, and you know that you're going to overload your body, and you give it time to adapt. And it's adaptation that's going to make it a little bit stronger. And it's the same with the mind. You know, you can train your mind, and and I think that's what certainly working with Steve was. Uh, was an eye-opener, as well as I think probably the biggest eye-opener for most people is it gives you, um, once you realise you've got like an emotional brain and a logical brain and, um, you know, a bit of a memory computer side going on, then then it gives you insight into yourself and why you are behaving and feeling like you are and some of the assumptions you're making about other people, then you've got to start with yourself first. If you can get that little bit of insight, why do I feel how I'm feeling? Why do I respond like I do? What triggers me? What's my best self look like? And what's my sort of, you know, not the best self look like? Why, why am I different? Why, why sometimes am I behaving in this kind of, you know, this second or a shadow version of myself? And why am I someone in my best self? What's happening there? Why can't I just be my best self all the time? Surely that must be doable. So take a bit of time to understand it and pick it. And some people just maybe haven't been educated. I certainly wasn't until really I sort of, st- sort of stopped and started to look at this stuff. And then you realise, I think, wow, a lot of my behaviour, a lot of my life was driven by emotion. It wasn't driven by the real me who could be calm and logical and think things through and quite, you know, have a lot of passion and feelings and caring. And and yet at times I could be something else, you know. And I think understanding that's fundamental, I think. I don't think there's any excuse for that. No,
1: I agree. Both points sounded very similar, in fact, because on one hand you're saying with your goals, Only go after the things you can control, like really focus on those things. And in the same way, when we're talking about personal responsibility of self, you're saying you can't control other people. Mm. So, but the thing that you know maybe you you do have control over in your life is your behaviour, how you act, how you conduct yourself, and then kind of leave the rest to.
0: Well, I think you can understand how other people are responding and how they're feeling, Mm. so you can accept that if somebody's um, you know somebody's in a very. there's two things really I I think first and foremost ambition is a big thing not to forget you know what's your level you you can be incredibly ambitious why can't we be the best in the world at something why can't we be the first to do something what's stopping us doing something that nobody else in the human race has ever done before nothing as far as I can see you know so I think there's a it's, it's um, you know, you've got to have that ambition, enthusiasm, the belief we can do whatever we want to do, you know, and, and really stretch that. And then I think the next bit, really, the target's is more like the the how to get there. Yeah. It's more like the boring stuff to get there, you know. So it's a it's like head and heart, really. And, um, and I think that the, if you understand yourself, then you should be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and if they're having a tough time or if somebody else is angry or there's something else going on with them, you know, rather than just dive in. And, and respond to the behaviour you're seeing at face value, why not stop and think about it a little bit? And Is this person in trouble? What's causing this? Where are they coming from? What's going on? You know, and try and understand it. And if they're just responding emotionally to something, and you allow yourself to immediately respond emotionally back, it doesn't really get anywhere, you know. So, mm. so you'd better hold back and wait and find out and and, and try anyway. Not always easy, but sometimes Not always easy. It. No, no. I struggle but, with that. Yeah.
1: I struggle with that, especially being in a, environment where my my time is so feels so precious right Mm. it's always there's so many things i could be doing and i'm you're exactly you're exactly the same Mm. i know i've Mm. you know i know people that work with you i know you're a very very busy person so it's it's tough in the moment to stop and pause and to have patience when the rest of my life is run on like efficiency Mm. yeah yeah yeah, you know what i mean (laughs) it's difficult
0: yeah i guess in 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 my world you know i'm out out to try and help people and and i do push people and we've got high standards we in you know, you do want to level commit. I don't like laziness, for example. I just can't. That 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 would really hurt. That gets me, you know. But then I have to manage it. and Think okay, well, if they, that's what they want, there's no problem. This just isn't the, this isn't the environment for them, you know. Mm-hmm. But in the main, I think understanding challenges and and um, setting standards and boundaries yeah. and working to all of that is important.
1: You um you built teams and developed teams that won over and over and over again in the same way that Sir Alex Ferguson did. I'm a Manchester United fan, so I was lucky enough to be, you know, it's not going so well lately, but in that era to watch our team win yeah, over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing that really um I find because I just thought that was normal growing mm. up, that mm. my team wins all the time. Yeah. The thing I find amazing now when I look back on it is how he managed to reinvent those teams, but also to get the same team mm. to win again and i this this idea of like where is your motivation after victory mm. and how do you get a team that's just won and then they win again mm. and i win again to mm. win again yeah where do they find the motivation they've still on the podium they've had the moment where does that come from
0: yeah it's a great question that one and i think um and i think credit to uh, sir alex and the work that he did i mean um, you know i think now looking back there there are those long serving successful managers who, like you say, when, whilst it's happening, it's an era and nobody really kind of thinks too much. It's just the norm. But then when you realise it, it's not actually the norm at all, you know, it's, it's something very, very special going on. And I think, the, I think success is interesting in, in, in terms of what it does to people. And, you know, I think in sport, we're kind of more geared to failure, really. You lose more than you win normally. And, um, you know, we kind of recalibrate the goals, dust yourself down and redo your plan and off you go again. But when you succeed, all of a sudden not many people have a, a plan for success. Do you know what I mean? So you succeed, nobody's got to, nobody wants to tempt fate, I guess. But not many people have a plan for success. And it does, it does impact on people massively in terms of their expectation on themselves, on their in terms of their hunger going forward. You know, it does, it does impact people in different ways. And of course you get more you probably get financially better off, you, you, your, your position in society changes, you know, who you are, you become a celebrity, whatever, whatever, whatever. And of course all that all that can change and impact on your drive and your hunger. And I think fundamentally that's the bit that's incredible about the people who stay at the top for a long time. It's not really the reward and, you know, what they what they're getting sort of financially and or, you know, all of the, those other kind of sort of um, trappings of, of success. I don't think that's what driving them. You know, there's something else deeper down driving those people forward and they'll just keep going and going and going. And I thought what um, Alex Ferguson did ever so well was he... There's always a challenge with teams when you've got a generation who grow together and they come together and you'll have a two, three, four years of amazing success with a group who've bonded and they're on a journey together. And, of course, then you start to get towards the end of that and at what point do you bring young talent in and let some of the more established talent go, you know, and, and there's a, a transition and he did that ever so well. He really did that ever so well. And we met and chatted a couple of times about that. Just when when I was younger, up in the velodrome in Manchester, he'd pop over to to the velodrome, and we'd sit there and chat. And and that was always one of the big things I wanted to ask him. You know, it's like, okay, what what are you watching? What are you seeing? Uh, why are you doing this? What you know? What have you seen there that makes you think that's the right time to change? And you're bringing this youngster in here, you know? And he'd say, you know, he he he'd quite often say that. Um, you know people get a bigger voice they get a bigger standing in the dressing room they might start to second you know oh, I'm not so sure about that gaffer you know they'd, and they'd have an influence and you know there'd be the celebrity, the media and other things going on etc cetera, etc cetera, and, and definitely sooner rather than later that would be right okay off we go We'd, and he'd change it listening to him talk about it he, he knew exactly what he was doing to be fair to him and he was a master at it
1: You've got to have had moments like that in your career where you see that culture Mm. at threat or at risk because of an individual. I've had them in my business too. And in those moments, very early in my career, I would try and, I guess, look past when I was a bit more naive in business, look past it or put things in place to try and mitigate the impact that one individual, the negative impact that one individual was having on the overall culture. Mm. And as I got older, I realized that I just needed to address the situation ASAP before it becomes like a virus and spreads, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. What do you yeah, do
1: yeah. in that situation where you, where you see an individual it's in your company? One.
0: It's a tough one. It really is. I mean, it's, a, it's an easy one to talk about. It's a very difficult one to do, um, particularly when, you know, that might be your best player, your best rider, your best performer, <laughs> and, and all of a sudden you've got the hitting the numbers and, and the behavior is not great. And um, then you have got to ask yourself, well, we have to just win in, and it doesn't really matter, just win. Um, but and and you kind of manage the impact of that across everybody. Or does behaviour and and conduct and culture matter? And you want to make sure that you actually you've got some cultural values that you're going to stand by, come come what may, you know. And and of course, those real moments when they do arrive and you've got to address it, they're very very stressful. I, I kind of get very in, introspective and look at myself in the mirror and think it through and think it through, and and, it, and everybody who works for me. Will say it takes me time to make a decision, and I think because I think of every permutation and I think it through so much emotionally, I fully in, I, I don't think I can't actually. I'm just so engaged with those things that I've really, really got to think carefully about them, and I'm about to make a couple of pretty big decisions along along those lines. And in the end, I thought, right, what do I believe in? Is it a popular decision? Is it a performance decision? In my world, you know, there's like, we, we're trying to win here or do we want to keep people happy or where where do we go? And you need some kind of, you need to establish your own, right, what do I believe in? Mm. And without really figuring out what you believe in, you're always going to be caught in a storm otherwise. And it's always going to be mentally excruciating, I think, because you're never quite sure. So I I like like to to anchor myself in right what are my values what i believe in and how does that apply to this situation and then okay well that's it and if it goes wrong i always want to be able to look back and say okay well i made decisions based on my principles i didn't make decisions based on that particular moment it doesn't matter how difficult it was and i'll stick to that and i've had, I've had one re- quite recently actually or two actually in the last two to three months, which were pretty challenging dis- dis- decisions like that. And on both occasions, I- I'm right back. And I tend to, I don't know if it's a good thing, probably not a good thing for the people around me, but I've got a few, you know, people, I really value their opinion, you know, and, and they're sort of like, you know, I'll I'll chat away to them and I'll ask them questions and... And I think sometimes I think, okay, well, I'm going to make that decision or he's asking me to make this decision. And what I'm trying to do is just kind of run through my thought processes and sound it out, sound it out, sound it out, sound it out, sound it out until I get really pre-anchored onto, no, I know what I really feel now. And then I'll make the decision immediately. I, I won't hesitate then. But to get to that point takes me a bit of time. And I need to talk about it to somebody. I need to I need to express it vocally, I think, to really make sure I understand what I'm thinking because if I can't explain it to somebody, I'm mm. maybe not quite there. So just thinking about it in my own head, or even writing it down for myself on big stuff, I like to try and be able to explain it to somebody to then understand fully that I really—if I can explain it to somebody—I think I pretty much got it. Whereas if I just in my head explain it to myself, <laughs> who knows what the hell I'm talking about, you know. So yeah, it's quite—it's um, a quite an agonising process. But you just need your principles. In the end, you need the decision-making framework. Framework, yeah. yeah. Based on you principles. do, yeah.
1: It's so funny, because everyone can relate to that, even if mm. they've not been in your position. I mean, we all have we all face really tough moments mm. where we kind of arrive at that that pass and we have to decide if we're going left or right. And the worst possible thing is making often
0: making no decision, right? Making no decision or or making a decision that you thought was the right decision because you thought it was the right thing to do, but it wasn't actually what you thought. And I think we're always fearful of the consequences of our decisions. So I think quite often you know I say to our guys sometimes, okay, imagine let's let's imagine we've got a problem. And take away, you know, we're going to have a group discussion about something. And imagine that all of our riders didn't have emotions; they were just robots. And what would you do? And they go, oh, "Simple. You, well, you just do this, this, and this." Okay. So now we put the emotions back in. Then that's that's what's that doing to you? Why is that changing your thinking? And then, of course, you don't, you know, got people's feelings, and the, you might have conflict. You might somebody might not be happy, and you know it, that that then impacts because we're trying to second guess the emotional response of a group or he's trying to second guess how somebody might feel or whether they're going to come at you or it creates conflict or, you know, and, and, and so I think it's every now and again I go, right, okay, let's just have the robots. What would we do? What would be the best thing to do? And they go, simple, we'll just do this. And so that's that's one thing. I think if you think that, right, it, the consequence of whatever we decide about, nothing bad happens. Hmm. Nothing bad happens. Absolutely, there is so you can make any decision you want, and nothing happens, nothing bad happens. what would you do, and people's mind freed up immediately, and they'll make a good decision, probably, but it's fear or it's the it's the it's the it's the consequence of this might happen or that might happen or it might go wrong or this or that or the other. they might not be happy or they might not be happy you know? mm. and it impacts your decision making really so you get all these biases, these emotional biases all the time, and don't get me wrong sometimes a gut gut feel is a good thing, you know so. But on the other hand, I think if you strip out the consequence of like nothing bad would happen mm. and also people's, other people's emotions, what would you do? Most people get pretty quickly to yeah, yeah, yeah. where they'd want to be, you know.
1: I just bit that in my head about some of the mm. big decisions I have in <laughs> yeah, my life. I thought, well, yeah. if like, there was no, if I was dealing with robots and I could just shuffle things without consequence, yeah. what would I do? Exactly. And that, the answer you're seeing there is probably exactly. the the right thing for the objective. Exactly. But maybe, well, you could also say, well, there are emotion, um, there's emotional consequences which might hinder the objective. Mm. So if I really annoy this person, or if I upset the balance
0: here, then the yep. objective's compromised. So <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah, it just helps a little bit. And I think, and I think you've got, in the end, you know, it's like, well, it's like taking out if you've got bad tooth, you've got to take it out. Might as well take yeah. it out quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. You know, that. it's going to hurt just as much in a couple of months' time. You know, so you might as well take it out now.
1: Yeah. Marginal gains. I do you know what mm. I have to say. This podcast is doing very well. Uh, I think it's maybe number one in Europe now, but I have to give you a lot of credit for that <laughs> because I think my team are sick and tired. I can see them laughing over there. are sick and tired of me saying this phrase, we've got to find the 1%. Mm. And for us in what we do with this podcast, I mean, it's, it's in my businesses as well, but in this podcast, it means like really giving a F about everything from... The audio to these eight cameras that are on us. Nobody else does it like we do it with eight cameras and the robots and the the thumbnail, the title, the way you were picked up today, to how you'll leave to really make, even when you walk in, we were a little bit slow on it today, but the music to create the right atmosphere, the lighting. We installed these blinds here because we're trying to, we want you looking at me Mm -hmm. because it's a better, Mm -hmm. all of these small things. And I never heard that directly from you, but I heard it indirectly. By you, As in my friends would tell me about this thing called marginal gains mm. from this guy called mm. so David, David Brailsford. And I like adopted it as a personal philosophy. Maybe I adopted it as a personal philosophy or it made my existing philosophy make sense.
0: Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, probably. E- either probably. one. You know, sometimes yeah, yeah, you yeah, hear yeah, an idea and you go, that's a great way to Somebody communicate. it. Probably. Exactly, you articulated yeah.
1: it for me. And um, so thank you for that. But my, I guess my question, because that has genuinely really helped me mm. communicate um, why small things are so important. But as it relates to marginal gains... How marginal?
0: Ah, good question. And how marginal was smile's that? marginal. Sorry? the smile's marginal.
1: Yeah, okay. Oh, good. Okay. I like Probably that.
0: your best marginal gain ever. Smile at people more often. Cheapest and easiest. Yeah, exactly. Right? And okay. people like it. People smile back.
1: Hmm. I you wonder what, what the trajectory, how that impacts your trajectory through life if you just smiled more.
0: A lot. Yeah. <laughs> I'd have thought so. You know, you'd be more approachable. People think you're a friendly person. You know, just in, in the main, you know, smile at people, smile at each other, say hello. Mm. don't walk past you know don't you're not so that you can't be all so consumed in your head that you're walking around with your head down and ignoring people you mm. know which which was very easy to do you know somebody says hello oh, hello mm. that's a marginal gain right there people don't value the small <laughs> stuff though they they focus too much about, on the big stuff right well i think you've got to get the basics right you know i think i think the marginal gains concept came about originally is when uh, we started out with the olympic program and the olympic kind of medals were so far away you know it seemed like such a mountain and they were so so in the distance and untouchable you're thinking like wow what how on earth what are we going to do to get from where we are now to get up there and as as we kind of as we started working through you know what what are we how are we going to approach this it occurred to me that there was a couple of things really one was there's obviously the 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 fundamentals, the basics of any kind of performance really. When if you get the fundamentals right for a consistent period of time, it's gonna get you a long way there. It really is. So that that's there's no, you know, that that's important. But the um the whole idea of marginal gains really starts start to think, right, okay, so we're we're pretty long way off up there. But so what can we do? What can we believe in? How do we get some momentum? How do we get some contagious enthusiasm? Of course people like a little bit of progression you mm-hmm. know and, and if we just aim for perfection perfection was so far away that there's no point aiming for because we're going to fail every day so i thought well let's have a little progression just a little little bit of progression and i'll make you feel good you know so it's like let's identify where we going. and we're we doing the basics right then what could we do by next week that we're not doing this week what little things could we do there's a million things that could impact a, a cycling performance could we could we i don't know change our diet to be slightly more optimal than it is this week and do that by next week. And everybody goes, yeah, we could do that. Okay, what else could we do? Could we do more in the in the gym? Could we do, could you change your attitude slightly? Could it be really kind of think about, just even engage with thinking about your attitude once a day? Could you do that? Yeah, we could do that. Okay, so off we go. And then you get to next week. And did we do all that stuff? Yeah, we did actually. Yeah. We haven't moved a long way, but I tell you what, it felt pretty good. What are you doing? I did this. Oh, what are you doing? I did this. And all of a sudden, you kind of start getting this idea of you—you you make you—you're on the move. And the, one of the things about marginal gains is you're on the move, and we like progression. We like to feel, oh, I feel quite good about myself today. I did X, probably means nothing to anybody else, and probably, probably, you know, very you know, unique to me. But it meant something to me, you know, and I feel quite good about that. And so I can I can do that again tomorrow. And, and small, small steps stick. Whereas you're trying to do something big, you can go to something big for a little while. We'll all go to the gym in January now in a couple of months to a couple of weeks' time. We'll go full gas in the gym and then of course by February or mid February we've all stopped again. Not you know, generalization, but you know what I mean. And um and why is that? You know, whereas uh, it, it, we're trying to make too big a change, that's not sustainable. And and it's 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 quite rare that you can make major change and make it sustainable. But it's quite easy to make small incremental change and make them stick Mm-hmm. And it's the stickability over time, I think, which makes the the big difference. And it's as much psychological as it's anything else. And if there's a group who buy into, right, let's look at the little things, you know, let's look at the difference. Let's look at the, you know, your setup in here, like the music and everything. Else. Once you start doing that, everybody's on the, you know, getting quite excited. Yeah, that's what makes us different. And then somebody's going to go, well, we could have that picture instead of that picture, or we could do this instead of that. And it feels good. Mm. And by virtue of the fact that you're all going, you're on it and you're mm. enjoying it and there's a bit of energy about it, then other ideas will come to the surface and you would be more open to, to, to adopting them. And people talk about it, you know, we're we're on the move, we're changing, we're doing all these little things because we can be asked to do the little things that other people can't be asked to do. Mm. And that makes a difference. That makes you a winner, in my yeah. opinion. And I say that quite often in our team. You know, we'll be working late and I say, all right, guys, let's just all get together for a minute. The reason we've been good, the reason we're good is we can be asked to do all these little things that all these other teams are now locked up. They've gone to bed. They're in the hotel. They can't be bothered to do this. We can, and it matters to us. That's what we're all about. Now right? let's keep going, and it and it works. You know, it works. Hundred percent, it works. It's been it twenty years, yeah, I know, yeah. and it's as much about that kind of enthusiasm and a positivity about embracing. A change isn't a chore. Improving isn't a chore. If it's a chore, it's a bit like I saying about education. You know, if, if what you're trying to achieve is a chore, then that's a, that's a challenge. How do you, how do you make something, how do you change somebody or reframe something into a little bit that's not a chore or something that actually, can over there and think I'm going to reframe that into a positive and then you'll stick with it. Mm. You know, feel good about yourself in the end. If we feel good about ourselves, we're going to be happier. We're going to be more engaged and be more willing to make more change if we feel good about ourselves. And and that was where sort of marginal gains come from. And I was, I was lying on my floor, actually, when I really have to think, I <laughs> did this crazy thing where I used to do my homework lying on the floor as a kid. And now when I really, really want to think, sort of really think about something, I get big sheets of paper, tend to lie on the floor and and write on that. And um, marginal gains came from um, economics, really, with marginal costing. That's where it, sort of I was, I was reading all about that. And about little kind of incre- you know incremental gains, and I thought actually, hmm, if you aggregate all of these marginal gains, maybe you get a big gain, yeah, but conceptually, it's kind of like, yeah, this is worth a go, and off we went.
1: I always uh, reference a compounding interest as well. It's yeah, like it exactly. feels like the same thing, right? Exactly, exactly. So you get one yeah. percent more yeah, yeah. a year. Look, what I so for yeah. us, speaking, I I often like whip out the compounding interest calculator on in Google, and I'm like, just change it by one percent and see what it looks like Amazing. in twenty years. Yeah, and the graph is just in a completely yeah. different place. Yeah, and that's another really good way to get people to believe in this mm. invisible force that mm. you know is compounding for or against you. Yeah, these one yeah, percents over yeah. time because you know, getting 10% interest on a million for Mm. 30 years versus getting 11% is ridiculously different um, at the end of that compounding cycle. You sound like, I mean, you've described yourself as being obsessed. You sound like you're pretty (laughs) obsessed with what you do. Yeah, I suppose I am. Yeah. What's the cost of that obsession?
0: Well, I think, you know, I've, I've pretty much kind of put everything I've got into what I do really, and um, that means currently I'll spend 220 days a year, you know, at races and, you know, a long time on the road and um, and that does come at a cost, I guess, you know, and, uh, yeah. Mm. It's hard to get out of it, I think. (laughs) I don't know if it's obsessive or not, I suppose... uh, you know i've obviously got uh, Millie my daughter who um i love absolutely adore her. love her to bits and um you know we we've spent I guess since she's born i've always been you know in involved in, in sport and um at some point soon i'd like to think right i'm going to stop and really spend time more time together that would be nice and and, and yet I think if I was thinking a while, why am I doing all of this? I think it, a lot would be, you know, I'd like her to be happy. I'd like her to have whatever, whatever she can have, really. And uh, yeah, it's a tough balancing act. That one that doesn't come easy to me.
1: I can, I can tell. I was just trying to visualise you sat on a beach with your cigar, with no work, mm. no sports. Mm.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it, it sounds yeah, more it's like a bit torture. of a struggle. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I would. I, I think I'd. I, I would like to just, I think, have a period where I just maybe just switch off. You know, I haven't had a holiday for a long time and I've had a few health issues, obviously. I had a, you know, yeah. an issue with my heart this year and I have a cancer and that kind of forced me to stop a little bit. But then I got back as soon as I could and, and, and carried on. So I think I'd like, yeah, I would like to just at some point learn to maybe take time out and, and enjoy the colour of life a little bit more and various things in life but um, yeah you
1: mentioned that um, getting a, getting news that I mean we all hope to never get up about ourselves or our loved ones which is that you had cancer now that's something you can't yeah. control
0: no that was a shock I must say that was a that was a a real shock I wasn't expecting it at all you know I, was, I ride my bike you know I, I, I train hard and um, I ride my bike a lot look after myself and I was very fit um and, um, and then I started to get these bouts of fatigue more than anything. And uh, it was a really weird kind of, you know, we, you race every day, you're moving every day, and I think people see the sport on telly, they don't see the rigour of all the travel and all the movement and the early mornings and late nights. And, you know, you go and race for a month, or a three-week race, you go there a week early, and you're nailed, you know, halfway through. And, of course, then you've got to really dig into So you're tired a lot of time, but then I getting these bouts of fatigue, which, just like somebody pulled a... Literally taking my battery out and I oh, I could feel it coming on and then I'd slump, I just couldn't function. And then I went for a check and uh, I did a blood test and then, you know, my PSA had gone up and and so I said, oh, I better go for another check and I said, oh, God, you know, I'll be all right and, and, and didn't bother and then eventually I did. And then and they said, yeah, I turned around and said, right, you better come see me straight away and, and that was it. I thought it was quite a big deal at the time, but then I moved on. Mm. i don't dwell on it i don't think about it much i i I like the sort of tough times don't last last tough people do you know and and i just thought right that's it done i'm not going to dwell on this i'm going to move on and that's what i did really
1: as quick as i could but those moments give you a different type of perspective on what matters right where you have like a kind of an existential moment of yeah you, you think about oh my god my the tectonic plate of my health is something that can
0: yeah very much so yeah
1: uh, that,
0: you wouldn't uh, yeah. even considered the thought of it. No, no, hundred percent, and, I, and I, absolutely, you're, you're spot on with that. You know, it. it you realise, right? Okay, we're not here forever. hundred you know, percent. Which is true for everybody, isn't yeah. it? You know, and kind you of when you're younger, it. it's one of those things you hear older people say, and whatever. But, but then you have the dawning of the realisation, right? I'm not here forever. So then you think, okay, what's important? What, what? You know, is it like to come back? Is, you know, what time I've got left? <laughs> All that kind of stuff. Mm. And then um, and you start to think about that. And uh, so then you start to think even more. You know, a lot of people talk to you about, you know, living in the moment. Of course, you've got to plan for the future. You can't just ignore the future because we're all all preparing the future, aren't we? You know, we're trying to get fitter or whatever, whatever. And that's, of course, today thinking about doing something today for your current self, but for your future self. You're thinking of your future self when we diet or train or, you know, it's not going to happen now. So your mind is on your future self. And to what extent are you worried about your future self and the consequences of things happening rather than enjoying the here and now? And I think that really does bring it home in terms of to what extent am I enjoying the present and living in the present and what extent am I just going to keep on going and and sort of sacrificing for my future self when my future self's never going to arrive? Mm. You know, and that's a bit of an odd question to sit and contemplate for a while. It's a reality check to spend any time in hospital, isn't it? You know, but equally... There's some amazing people working in there, and it's just yeah, I was blown away by that. Actually, did Steve and,
1: Peters speak to you through this period at all? Oh yeah, I speak to Steve.
0: <laughs> I, I, think, I mean, I love Steve. I must say, he's. Um, I think you had Fran Miller on, yeah, yeah, on, yeah. on on as well, and she'll say the same. I'm sure, and and a lot of the people who we worked with with Steve would say, you know, he's been a, he's a game changer for us. And uh, whenever I'm worried, I'm not sure about something. I'm kind of know what he's going to tell me, but I still like to hear it anyway, you know. So, um, so I chatted to him then and, um, about how to, you know, what, what to deal with. I, I was, I, it, it upset, um, I didn't like it that it upset, it upset Millie, I think. And I didn't like that, you know, I didn't like the idea that she was worried and, 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 and so that was quite, um, I, want, I wanted to make sure that I dealt with that properly. But, but then equally, Life's for living. You know, and you think, okay, well, here I am, I'm still here, mm. and uh, I'm going to make the most of this. You know, and and I'm going to enjoy it a little bit more, and and stop, you know, worrying and, and and thinking, and you know, constantly this this idea of chasing and doing something for the next event, and and it's like, boys, chill out a little bit and and, and enjoy the things that you like doing, and and in the end, like most people, the things I like the most are simple things. And you know, I like riding ride my bike. I like, like like being out in beautiful roads on my bike i like i like socializing with people i'm not a big kind of big gathering person i'm a you know smaller group of people and i've got some amazing you know people and friends and i don't know i just like the simple things in life really but really really taking them in Mm. Mm.
1: acceptance i i was when reading and hearing how you dealt with that situation i think the um The really powerful thing that I, I kind of
0: got from that was getting to that point of accepting
1: the situation mm. as fast as you can. Mm.
0: Yeah, good point, yeah. And, and I know it's a bit cheesy as well, but we talk about, yeah, it's a bit of a cheesy phrase, but the whole idea of, you know, when you're under pressure and you're really in a moment of real, you know, okay, the, the, the heat's on here, um, you know, the idea of instead of sort of trying to resist and be like a stick and, and kind of bending, bending and snapping, just think of yourself as bamboo and just bend. And you know full well that once that once this moment's passed, you're gonna snap back up, you're gonna be okay. And so we talk a lot about bending like bamboo and not not, not, not not bending like a stick, you know, not snapping. And just just bend like bamboo and, and we're in a bit when we're in difficult moments, we go, well, it's just bent. We're just bending like a bamboo, it'll we'll pass, it'll pass. And and sure enough, most times it does. We worry about stuff that never happens, don't we? Always. We worry about massively about stuff that never actually happens and and there also to it brings all of that kind of stuff home, you know, it resonates after.
1: And it still so much joy from our present, right? When we're thinking about all that all that could go wrong. And then as as you've highlighted with your theory of focusing on the controllables, it hinders performance, which is um which is incredibly detrimental too. Mm. One of the things when I when I started reading about your future now looking forward, mm. you then also got the news a couple of years later, this year, I believe. Yeah. That oh, you had yeah. that you had
0: had to have heart surgery. <laughs> that was a bit of a shock as well. Yeah, so so I was um, so after the pandemic, I always I ride my bike a lot. And my uh, my dad actually was 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 very ill, so I went down to as soon as we could travel after the pandemic. I went down to uh, to France to the Alps, and I was there visiting the hospital. I rode my bike, and as I was riding uphill, I was getting this kind of. I thought it was a pain in my throat or something to do with my breathing or the dry air, maybe the altitude. And as it was, when I was trying pretty hard, pushing myself pretty hard, it really started to to hurt quite a lot. And then if I slowed down, it subsided and off it went. So I thought, okay, it was just going to pass, as you do. I went out for a ride with a a friend of mine, the guy called Nicky Craig, and we were out riding. And he, um, and I really, what I ride. I said, blime, I think I'm going to have to stop here because his, you know, his pain was getting really bad. So I thought in the end, I thought, well, I'll go and have it. I'll go and have it. I'll go and check it out, you know, just in case. I went for a, a CT scan of my heart and the guy came out. <laughs> it was a German guy. I said, David, you have a big problem. And and my uh, my left descending artery was totally blocked. And I was literally kind of, you know, they, they wouldn't let me, that was it. They kept me there, put me on um, medication straight away and I was pretty much operated on, in, you know, to avoid a heart attack basically. And that was a shock. That was um, that was pretty full on, really. Yeah, that was more of a shock than a cancer was. I don't know why your heart feels worse than I don't know, but it it, it was a different it was a different sensation. That one, I must admit, that had me worried.
1: And that's another set of uncomfortable conversations with Millie and.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And then I had to go in and, um, so the doctor, again, doctor's brilliant, went in and and then I I thought, God, I've done a typical bloke thing here where I ignored all these symptoms for, you know, eight months, nine months, just ignored it, didn't go and have it checked properly. And then, and in the end, of course, I could have done it sooner. And then I went in and uh, they went in with a wire and a camera to have a look how badly it was blocked, you know, the, the artery. And they had a so open heart surgeon there and the a guy puts a stent in like a plumber, and they were going to decide whether they could get a stent in and open up the artery, or they were gonna go and do a heart, you know, a bypass basically, and take a bit of vein and stitch it in. And and I came out and I felt like ten men, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah, amazing. Amazing. Went out on my bike, it's like I'd gained fifty watts. It was really yeah, well. brilliant. And then I haven't um I haven't had any pain since and I still I did six and a half hours the day before yesterday with the lads with Myorca. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Speaking
1: of progress then, one of the things that I we were kind of talking about before we um we started chatting, but also I I really wanted to ask you about kind of the last point I was really curious about regarding the team was that your philosophy towards the team is evolving with time mm. and how you get the best out of the people. Mm. Um People are typically quite rigid in their philosophy and the way they think, but I read that you're now taking a individual first approach,
0: not a team first approach. Is that accurate? Mm. And why? Mm. Well, I think there's the individual behind the performer, right? You know, and I think everybody is. So I don't think it's individualized in terms. Of, you know, the team still is still absolutely. You know, the fundamental kind of tendency of what we do, but there is an individual behind the performer, and, and that's worth exploring and 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 maybe being expressing more. We've been tremendously successful, and and with Team Sky we, we had a, a a brilliant run and and and, and won, you know, all, also a lot a lot of back to back Tour de Frances and other Grand Tours. However, over that time, you know, there's like you you know you can you just, when you become serial winners, uh, it becomes predictable, and of course some people like that. If you're a supporter, or some people don't like that. If it becomes predictable, and you know the interest and and the, and the sort of the emotional response that it generates, the performance generates. Is an interesting thing to contemplate. You know, we just seen the Formula One at oh, the other weekend, yeah. and everybody's gripped by it because it was just unpredictable. Nobody's going to happen. There was suspense. There was an emotional, you know, roller coaster along with the actual performance. And I think when you look at sports, if you look at, you know, if you think you can perform on the on a vertical axis, performance goes up and up and up and up and up until you become zero winners. But then across the bottom, you think actually, what kind of Emotional response, what kind of feelings, what kind of style, what, you know, what how are you making people feel? And you can have a team like Germany, let's say, mm. who's a ser- serial winners, and think mm, people go, oh, yeah, okay. but the Germans love it, obviously, but yeah, okay. But a team like who achieve the same, like Brazil, people go, love Brazil. Everybody loves Brazil. Why is that? What's that? what's the difference? You know, they're still performing, they're still winning. So the the metric, if you like, the winning is still similar, but the way that they're going about winning seems to be slightly different. And in the centre, let's say, the motor racing scenario or Schumacher maybe or, you know, some of the... the, the and, and you think, of, I don't know, Usain Bolt or maybe the All Blacks or, you Manchester know, United. Manchester United. Injury time. Yeah, injury time, yeah. And there are certain teams or that I think, oh, yeah, hmm, don't really warm... To that. Not feeling that, but this one over there doing the same thing. God, I love them. And what is it about? What is it about those teams? And is that something you can is it just happens or is it something that you can actually work towards? So for example, when I when I first went left home to go to France to to be a professional cyclist, there was something in that sport that chimed with me so much and got me so passionate that I left everything behind. I left home, I went to a foreign country, I couldn't speak the language, didn't know what I was going to do, but I still did it. I still went because something was pulling me And there was something about that sport at that time that I just adored. And when I think now and think, right, when I was that age, what kind of team, if you'd have told me then at that age, I could be running one of the world's biggest cycling teams and had the success that we've had and still be running one, I think, what kind of team would I'd have loved to have seen? What kind of flair? What kind of, you know, how are they raced? And would it have been, you know, would it have been very much park the bus? Mm. Uh, or would it been like, you know, just bulldoze your way through? Or would it be a bit of panache and flair and mm. cool, you know? and Excitement. Excitement, like yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. And so can you, does, where does style, you know, and, and that sort of emotion fit in terms of performance? And you can go after performance clinically, you know? And can style ever be a performance attribute? And if you think about that, you know, so so is that something you can, Go after, or is it something that you just have? Is it just something that happens in the chemistry of a team or is, is it the way that you are? So for us, we obviously the race of bikes, but what about off the bike and the way you speak and the way you do your social media and the way you are with people and the way you are with fans and who you are, the colours and everything else that goes on? Is there something in there which actually can bring out the individual and you get to know the individual? So they're not just kind of guys with sunglasses on with helmets on and kind of like sort of faceless, you know, warriors mm. as it were. Where's the person? You know, we got guys from Ecuador and, you know, come from, you know, un- un- unbelievable backgrounds in Ecuador and their stories of how they found themselves in our team is just incredible. And the guys from Colombia and the guys from Britain, the guys from everywhere, mm. <laughs> they've all got their journeys. They've all got personalities. They've all got, they're humans, you know, they're interesting, their backstories are interesting. And it's like, where does that all kind of come together in a team? And how does that get how do you how do you watch that performance and see all of that? Is it possible? And I'm really interested in that at a minute.
1: This is such a this is such a conversation that someone who has won a lot would would have. <laughs> They're now thinking about the way they want to win. And it's interesting because when you were saying that, I was thinking about different teams and Jose Mourinho and Klopp and and then the one that I really Stumbled on was boxing, mm. where you can mm. have a, a Vladimir Klitschko, yeah, who holds the the, the throne for de- a, mm. an, a decade, but then everybody turns off the sport, yeah, and then yeah. you get an Anthony Joshua and a Tyson Fury that come along. Yeah. They're still champions, but mm. they're doing it in a way that's captivating the public. So my 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 question, in my mind then became: Well, you have to ask yourself: Is the objective just to win? Or is it to win and make loads of money and inspire a generation? Because mo- people are flooding into boxing now because of Fury and AJ. Yeah. And the money those guys are making is way more than Klitschko was making. Yeah. So I guess it's a case of a I think it's degree. like the
0: old, it's the, uh, we've, we've been talking about it, you know, it's like it, if, if you win a lot, you can be respected. You'll be respected. But can you be respected and loved? Can you be respected for your victories, but loved for a way that you achieve them? And that's where the, that's the holy grail.
1: Why is, why is being loved, why does that matter?
0: Admired and loved and get passion from people and, you know, just generate emotion. And that's what sport's about. You know, that that's what really I think in the end, you know, it's there's something about sports which is inspiring. It can move people, you know, and, and, and I think the whole emotion of sport is something that is that's why we love it. Mm. In the end, you know, you can take part in it or you can watch it. You know, why was everybody watching a Formula One? Oh at the weekend, God, because the it was so is. inspiring and emotional, it's just wow! You got to see yeah. it. And the same with Klitschko or Tyson Fury. You know when he's got that knockout punch and he was out, he and then he gets back up again. That is insane. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane. I can feel myself now. It's just like that's that. Those moments in sport are what sport's all about. And I think that's what you know. If if you're involved in sport and you like a you know, been most of my life. Involved in but of course you've got to try and win first and foremost. Mm-hmm. And winning itself isn't easy, you know, and, and of course that's got to be the the first kind of absolutely you're not gonna you would never go after style if it wasn't intelligent. But some people have got intelligence and style and the flair and the cantonars or the centers or and we race, you know. And I guess I guess for me, I know this sounds maybe a bit bonkers, but you know, we're in the business of thoroughbreds. Really, if you think about it, the top of the top where I'm, you know, the guys I work with, they're, they're all thoroughbreds. But I want a thoroughbred racer. Somebody can race. Golf sport isn't a team sport, it's a race. It, you know, We're racing one another. You're trying to outwit your opponent and trying to outmanoeuvre. And It's not just a physical endeavour. It's a race. And there's something about, you know, there's something very, very um, cool about the guy, the great racers. And there's something about that which I just adore. You know, he saw it at the weekend with Hamilton and Verstappen. What a, I mean, unbelievable, unbelievable. I, could, I admire those guys so much, I really do. And and I think, um, I think most people admire Hamilton now, maybe even a little bit more because we've seen a different dimension of his character, a different uh, kind of. He was he was amazing after that. In that in that short period after that, you know, when when Verstappen won, the way he managed himself, and the way he handles himself, was just unbelievable and i think everybody saw a different a different view or looked at lewis hamilton through a different lens and they saw a very different person than what they would normally maybe see Mm -hmm. and therein lies the magic of sports i think you know my last question Mm. for you
1: again i ask this question from a very personal personally curious space because it's a problem i've not figured out for myself which is we talked a little bit about sacrifice there is about romantic relationships Mm. and the struggle of being are great and winning and sacrificing and doing 200 days a year at races while also trying to meet these goals of romantic relationships. I've struggled with it pretty much my whole life. Um, have you struggled with it? Do you have any any answers for me? <laughs> mm, no, I don't. am
0: <laughs> not your man here. Unfortunately, no, that's something that, you know, I wouldn't say that um, I'm that good at if I'm honest, if I'm really honest, yeah, yeah. you know. Same. And... Selfish. I think I'd like to be Are you selfish, do you think sort of selfish, yeah probably or or um sort of concerned really, you know like so so like driven god i can't I can't fail at this, you know, and that that sort of fear of and it is there's something that inside of me that that worries about failing so much that i I can't switch off from it in a way, you know, in two
1: thousand and fourteen, you mm-hmm. struggled with that right when that was the year you didn't win
0: the Tour de France, big time, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you mean by big time? Give me the specifics. I don't know. I just, I just at the time I was embarrassed and not not about the the the, the team or anything. I just for myself and I felt this. Ink of, oh God, I couldn't go out. I couldn't go out of the house. I couldn't leave the garden. I remember speaking. I I, I called Steve Peters from the garden and thought, God, I've, I've let everybody down. I've failed. And it was it was um yeah quite a, quite a, winning for me doesn't actually. That sounds terrible, but. I mean, I get the exhilaration from the moment that you win. Obviously, it's great to win, but the emotion, the, the you know, the depth or the the amount of emotion it gives me to to win is is nowhere near the amount of emotion I get from losing. So the negative emotion from losing is massive for me, whereas the positive of winning is is okay. Yeah, it's done the job, part of the journey. Great, fantastic. Let's keep on going. And so I think this kind of the not well, the avoidance, but not wanting to lose, and and really trying to help people to win. You know, it's like. Do
1: you know where that comes from? Because that does sound. No, I don't know. Intense.
0: Yeah, I don't know, but I've always had it. I've always been the same. You know, I get super excited by wanting to do of big, bold, ambitious things, and then going out and say, "Right, we're gonna well, let's go and do X," and then afterwards, I think, "Oh, what, what, what have I done?" And then, of course, then I've got to make it happen, and I get after making it happen. And and I think that's where I've got this kind of dichotomy really of there's part of me which is my probably my heart, which is the crazy ambition of wanting to do things that have never been done before and helping people go after stuff and, and all that kind of, you know, nothing's impossible. Mm. Nothing's impossible. Anybody says it's impossible will prove you wrong. And then you've got to get after it. Mm. And I think the getting after it is where I go back into more of this whole the detail. The more, that's the doing of it. And it's as if my head, my heart sort of sets these wild kind of ambitions and then I've got to switch out of that into the right, let's get after it. And then the, the not wanting to not succeed of whatever it was uh, drives me then, you know.
1: We have a tradition on this podcast, mm-hmm. which is the previous guest writes a question for the next guest and i don't actually get to see it until i open this book so you will also be writing a um a question for my next guest if you could turn back the clock on one day this year and do it differently what would it be and why
0: this year wow there's a lot going on for me this year that's for sure I think I'd like to go back. So Millie's just had her 17th birthday. And um, on the 29th of November, the driving, car, test, et cetera. And I wouldn't go back and change it necessarily, but I'd just go back and relive it because I loved that. And rather than something I'd change, I'd just go back and do it again. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's no big deal. It's, you know, get your car. and Yeah, so I'd like to come spend that whole day again that's what i'd like to do
1: amazing well thank you so much for coming here because as i have said you you know it's so funny that i've i've never met you but you've had such a big influence on mm. me and my philosophy and helping me articulate that and um you know sophie who's my assistant once upon a time worked with you and she yeah, amazing, has always yeah. spoken well <laughs> <laughs> about you which is actually really remarkable because people often don't leave a job and speak so highly mm. of the person they worked with but mm even, you know, since we started doing this podcast, she was telling me, you've got to get, you've got to get Dave on, you've um, got to get Dave on. And she's, she's always just sung your praises and um, your philosophy, the way you articulate it, I think has helped more people than you'll probably ever realize. But mm. it's an, I consider this to be a huge honor having mm. you here today, um, as did my friends when I told them you were coming. And that's for very, very good reason, because everybody thinks you're a bit of a legend. So thank you so much well, for your honesty. and your Thank goodness. you.
0: Thank you, and thank you for what you guys do. You know, oh, thank you. I think you bring a lot of happiness and joy and inspiration to a lot of people. A lot of people so. to listen to what you have got to say. You know, and which is which is remarkable. And I think, um, and I think you, you know, when you got when you get that, there's a sense of responsibility in a way, isn't there? By the time, you know, by the the, the level of the platform that you built for yourself, and you, and you do an amazing job with it. So, thank you. Oh, thank you. Means a lot.